presence of God, I want to talk about Afghanistan today and about armor. My mind and my heart and my time and energy has been fully with Afghans this week, mostly because real Afghan people in our community have been texting me the hardest types of message all week. But Ephesians 6 led me to think about this matter in a particular way. In addition to, to seeing lots of harrowing scenes of human desperation, this week we've had a unique look at an important use of American military equipment. We're used to seeing U.S. helicopters and tanks and C-17s involved in military offensives on foreign soil, like Desert Storm, Operation Restore Freedom, and Shock and Awe, the kinds of names we give our attacks. But this week, rather than using these vehicles on the offensive with bombs and guns and missiles, they were really being used exclusively for their armor to keep people safe or to try to keep people safe in the middle of a conflict. We've seen the movement of troops this week, but not to secure fighting positions. We've seen them located in useful and security positions at an airport only for the purpose of evacuation. We have seen an armored USC-17 packed not with US troops and their ammunition, but rather packed with 640 Afghan citizens trying to flee the country. The army and its armor are being used to protect vulnerable and frightened people at this particular moment. And I'm thankful that the lectionary keeps us for one more week in the book of Ephesians. And I found the, the presence of the armor analogy to be a gift that can maybe help us make sense of these confusing times. It's been a strange week for me as I've, I've tried to prepare a message from God's word to reflect on what's been happening in Afghanistan. And it's been a strange week because of the flashbacks I've been having. At first I thought it was deja vu, but no, flashback is a more appropriate word. The only thing deja vu is the location, Kabul, Afghanistan. The activity that occurred there this week is actually not deja vu at all. We've gone from being encroaching army to being momentarily armor. 18 to 20 years ago, most of the sermons I was preaching were about Afghanistan. Some of you remember that and got sick of them. About Afghanistan or about 9-11 or about Iraq. And between sermons, I was diligently working on a paper called Thinking Theologically About Security, Following Christ in an Age of Terror. I hoped the RCA would accept this paper and use it as grounds for a, a firm anti-war stance about Iraq and Afghanistan. I was 25 and naive, and I couldn't believe that many disagreed with the position paper that I was working so hard on. And that paper wasn't accepted until the wars were many years in, in 2005. It was finally adopted and sits useless in an orange book on a shelf and didn't get used in the public forums where it could have helped our general secretary. The wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the American military offensives there dominated my and frankly our theological attention back then. As we were wrestling with questions of war and peace, we tried to pull in fresh voices all the time. And I remember in October of 2002, our prayer group for peace, which we formed, invited Reverend Myrna Benke from a new organization called Not In My Name to come and visit us. And Not In My Name was formed by family members of victims of 9-11 who were concerned that America was bombing Afghanistan in the name of their deceased relatives. Reverend Benke told us in the 
that in a speech soon after 9-11, President Bush shared a story of a man who went back inside the World Trade Center to save a disabled friend, and he died. And President Bush argued that we needed to bomb Afghanistan as retribution payback for this man's life. But it so happened that the man whose story was told had been a very committed pacifist, and the family was horrified to think that the government would use his death as the fuel for the raging fires of war. And that family started the group, not in my name. The family and other families that became part of that group believed that, quote, governments have tough decisions to make. There is no denying this, but the government doesn't know their family members and their radical commitment to peace. They insisted that the government not use the life stories of their relatives as grounds for more destruction. And the Sunday after we had that lecture, I found this sermon. After sharing with the church about the not in my name visit, I said, quote, there is another name that should never be used as fuel for war, and that name is Jesus Christ. I am not arguing today for a doctrine of pacifism versus a just war doctrine. I believe that Christians of goodwill can have varying opinions about war, even this impending war with Iraq. The factors of war are many, and they're incredibly complicated. I do not envy the president's position right now. He is in an incredibly difficult spot. But this I know. Jesus Christ is the suffering Lord. Jesus Christ is not a God of warring madness. His victory over death came when, as Messiah, with the potential to rule the world, he refused to play the power game played by other worldly powers. He kept his sword in its sheath, and he insisted that his followers do likewise. Jesus' primary identity is as the crucified, not as crucifier, unquote. Thirty-two days after I preached that sermon, our military lit up the night sky of Baghdad with Operation Shock and Awe in one of the most atrocious and illegal wars of all time. Though estimates vary widely, it is, it is clear that we killed between 800,000 and 1.3 million Iraqis in a decade to go with a couple hundred thousand Afghans that we killed over the past 20 years. We have displaced in those two countries alone upwards of six million people by our actions. One of the most disturbing things for me in, in early 03 about the lead up to the war in Iraq and the ongoing war in Afghanistan was the overtly religious justification for it. On January 28th, 03, the president in the State of the Union said, quote, we go forward with confidence because this call of history has come to the right country. The liberty we prize is not America's gift to the world, it is God's gift to humanity. We do not claim to know all the ways of providence, yet we trust in them, placing our confidence in the loving God behind all of life and all of history." Unquote. And there were many, including Professor Elaine Pagels of Princeton, who expressed concern that this language in the State of the Union Address sounded like the language of holy war, sounded like crusade. We, the Christian West, were claiming to be the agents of God's providence fate to bring the gift of liberty that's to be extended by preemptive war upon the Muslim world. Final flashback. I found a Christmas Eve sermon that I preached in 03 where I wrote, quote, I'm having an easier time imagining Mary and Joseph and all the other people traveling at the whim of the registration announced by Caesar these days. For in the past two years, as our Caesar has announced war, we've watched lines of Afghans trying to get out of Kabul in October 2001 before the bombings. Lines of old Toyota pickup trucks stacked 15 feet high with mattresses, cooking utensils, and children, and people walking in mass with everything they can carry down dusty roads. 
I think the road to Bethlehem in Jesus' day must have looked something like that Afghanistan, and also like this Iraq in the weeks before shock and awe where streams of families headed out of Baghdad and to Crete because of the announcement of the most powerful ruler of their world. That was then, friends, in 01 through 03. This is the picture now. This time in 2021, the pictures we are seeing are lines of vehicles coming into Kabul, trying to reach the airport, to get on armored military aircrafts that this time are not bringing troops and supplies, but are rather attempting to fly US citizens and new Afghan refugees who are at risk because of working with us to the very country that started this mess in the first place, our own. Friends, one week after the Afghan government fell to the Taliban, one week into the chaos we're seeing at the Kabul airport, I find myself really confused by how I feel. I know how I feel about seeing babies handed gently over fences into the airport complex without their parents on the other side, horrified. I, I know how I feel about seeing desperate people trying to jam themselves on planes inside or the outside of the plane to escape the arriving Taliban, horrified. Yet other things make me glad. To see our military planes taking people to safety rather than dropping bombs, that's clearly a better thing. As disturbing and as slow as the long lines are of people trying to get out of Afghanistan through Kabul, these lines pale in comparison to the lines of people trying to get out of Kabul before we decimated it in October 2001. We need to remember these things. I remain largely confused, but questioning, and I hope you are too. And here are some of my living questions and uncertainties. Despite having heard about the Taliban for 20 plus years, I do not know enough about the Taliban. I do not know how the people of Afghanistan as a whole feel about the Taliban. Is there relief by many that control is back in the hands of a non-puppet Western government? Or is there only fear? I do not know. Has Taliban leadership accepted some of the societal changes introduced over the past 20 years that have to do with the rights of women? I do not know. Will there be retribution against those who fought on the side of the U.S. occupation? Very likely. But will it be violent retribution or only political and social? I'm not sure. Will other powerful countries step in, or have they already, in support of the Taliban? And in so doing, will they make Afghanistan a staging ground for their own agendas? And will the U.S., through the CIA, continue to utilize drones and other terrorizing military tools in Afghanistan and in that, matter, in that manner fuel ongoing anti-American sentiment? Will President Biden's steadfast commitment to get out come to be seen in time as the first righteous move in Afghanistan by a U.S. president in a very long time? And might we even find that President Biden's ability to do so was rooted in President Trump's commitment to get out? We have to live with these really real questions. You might think that I'd have answers to these questions. After all, the US intervention in Afghanistan has resulted in our church right here in Highland Park becoming a host to lots of new refugee families from Afghanistan. IRISE has resettled 25 families, over 90 people since 2017, with representatives who are Sunni and Shia, 
in terms of religious tradition, and who are Pashto and Hazara and Uzbek and Tajik in terms of ethnicity. Could they answer my questions? Some of the questions, yes. But the answers I get are different from each person. Each of these groups, and sometimes each family within an ethnic or religious group, has a different experience of U.S. involvement in their lives. Our local engagement with Afghans has, has kept me in the space of cautiousness about drawing conclusions about the whole scenario. I called one Afghan man yesterday morning who worked near Kandahar for 16 years with the U.S. Army. I was working on the sermon and I just needed to ask someone direct and I thought he'd be comfortable. Sir, if you don't mind, what is your feeling about the Taliban coming back into power? And he said, Seth, to be honest, we really can't say. In some places, they seem to be peaceful, and they mean it. And in other places, some have been brutal. But I don't know if those being brutal are even part of the Taliban, he said. Many people broke out of prison recently, and they are not part of this new Taliban, so it's very confusing who is doing what. At this time, we just cannot say. All of the activity of the last week has been hard. There are lots of unanswered questions but in my estimation, one thing that feels profoundly better is to see our military acting as armor rather than acting as aggressor, as it did in Afghanistan and Iraq post 9-11 20 years ago. And it's against all of this backdrop that I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 6. This summer, we've spent more time in Ephesians than I've ever spent in Ephesians in my life. Pastor Terry gave a great sermon on it. I gave a sermon on it earlier in the summer. And it's come up in lots of our liturgies. The first three chapters tell this glorious story of the work that God is up to and that reached a particular pinnacle in the arrival, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In those chapters, the writer who is Paul or an early follower of Paul tells us beautifully that we've been adopted, redeemed, experienced revelation, and been reconciled to God. With lofty language, we hear these promises about this newness. The writer gives us a glimpse of the eternal purposes that have now been unveiled. He's so joy-filled and confident in these greater purposes of God. But today, right at the end of chapter 6, we get a clear message that the writer of this joy-filled, victorious story, and I'm just going to say it's Paul, is actually in chains. There's been a couple other references that make it seem like maybe, but, but now, like, chains is used. Maybe he is in Rome, chained and overseen by a guard. I read somewhere that he might have even been chained to a guard. That was a practice at this time. Every day he had to stare upon fully armored guards who controlled his earthly fate. And looking at this guard in full armor... I think it got him thinking about his own armor, the armor given by God. It used to be that I couldn't stand military language in Scripture, but thinking about it in context totally changed it for me today. As I said, Paul knows this greater story, the story of God's amazing, powerful love, and that proclamation is his offensive, his mission. But he's living trapped in another story, the story of a broken world run by armed and armored Caesars and soldiers. But Paul knows confidently which story is stronger. He knows that God's story and the story of the crucified and resurrected Christ who redeems the world is the narrative that will win in the end in God's time. 
And he knows that already the God who wins in the end is present now, and the final gifts are inbreaking now, and God's promises and how he and others wear them on their bodies can function as an armor, an armor stronger than the armor worn by the Roman who has him in chains. And he commits at the end of his letter to asking followers to put on armor as opposed to taking up arms. He says, be strong in God and in the strength of God's power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. So hear this, friend. Paul's first move when, when talking about why we need armor is to name the enemy and to recognize the grandeur of it. Paul sees the enemy not just as the powerful people in front of him, the guards and the Caesar, but this is something bigger. Evil is more cosmic. Paul has talked endlessly about God's power and purposes being on a cosmic scale, and here he states clearly that the challenges of evil are larger than life, too. And I want to think about that for a moment. Because Paul knows he's dealing with something big, something cosmically sinister. He moves carefully, and he goes for cosmic-sized protection. And maybe it would help us to think bigger about evil and sin so that we move more carefully. He doesn't say, everyone who loves Jesus Christ, fight the enemy before our eyes one battle at a time. Instead, he says, friends of God, put on armor, the whole armor, so you can keep standing against the devil. Armor, in Paul's analogy, is for the purpose of being protected, to be able to stand, to remain steadfast in a world that still has a complicated and devilish bent to it. So what is it that we wear for armor in a world like this? Paul says, fasten the belt of truth around your waist. What does that mean? Truth, it seems to me, is something that, that takes time and care to understand. Stopping and listening, really asking questions, slowly and methodically and calmly assessing things, that should be for you a belt if you want to be protected from the devil and able to stand firm, really seek the truth. Do not rush. Fashion that like a belt around your waist. And can I say, friends, that in this day and age, I think there is a serious absence to this piece of our armor. In the soundbite, fast-blasting, Twitter-length communication of today, truth often gets lost. We've got to find that piece of our armor again. And righteousness. Have that be for you a breastplate. Right behavior shaped by a community of righteousness and guidance. It's part of your armor. It's part of the way you stand up to the devil. Be committed to a way of life that's honorable and pleasing to God. And as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim peace. That's cool. Peace shoes. What do those look like? Shoes that diffuse situations, shoes that are shaped like apology, shoes that, that are high tops of reconciliation. I think they look like a commitment to nonviolence. I think these shoes must be like an olive branch. I think they look like shoes willing to work to offer care to others around basic needs. And hold in your hand the shield of faith 
somehow when, when you're holding on to those promises of God's grace that, that are the first half of Ephesians, those promises of redemption, adoption, God's higher purposes, these promises of faith can shield us and can keep us deflecting arrows from the evil one. They don't get inside. We don't let them rattle us. And oh yeah, don't forget, you wear a helmet of salvation. Keep wearing that. Remember, it's on your head. Come what may, your salvation, your life with God has already started and nothing, not even death itself, can separate you from the love of God. That's right. Thanks, Catherine. I clap for that one. <laughs> Friends, this is good news. With all this armor, we're able to stand against the devil or against the complicated forces of the principalities and powers without getting pulled into offensive actions and behaviors that we'd regret. There's only one weapon in this text that we're encouraged to wield, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. Paul goes on to say that it is the mystery of the gospel of God's love that we should be hoping to share with boldness, like a sword. It sounds like a pretty good sword. While we wear our armor, even as he is, while he's chained and under the watch of a guard. Friends, the full armor of Christ is different than the armor on the outside of a C-17. But I have to say, the fact that we've taken an armor-only approach this week feels like a move of strength, not weakness. And I'm actually really proud of our commander-in-chief for taking a hard hit to his reputation and everything else. He's screwed up a whole lot of stuff around this thing, but he's been firm at not letting himself go on the offensive in terms of getting us into things that lead to massive amounts of death and casualties. And that's hard to do. I like armor a lot better than I like guns. I like armor a lot better than I like bombs. I like armor a lot better than I like missiles. I think we have a chance in the next weeks to save a lot of lives of those who were pulled into our 20-year offensive if we focus on armor and security, standing steadfast through these times, rather than attempting to re-engage in any offensive in Afghanistan. I wonder if there is a way that we, as followers of Christ, wearing our full armor, might offer up some affirmations about the use of armor. And if we might offer up some affirmations for future armor-first strategies when it comes to conflicts. Maybe we can even offer up some suggestions for what additional armor might look like. Like truth belts, righteousness breastplates and peace shoes, armor that's worn preemptively when there's a conflict, armor that we wear already, friends of God, armor that fits with the sword of God's bigger plan for reconciliation and adoption, armor that is consistent with wielding swords of conversation, swords of negotiation, swords of nonviolence and self-giving love. I am against holy wars and any sense that a major superpower would use words like providence while destroying and maiming is an abomination. But I am not against holy armor, shaped and fastened by the way of God made known to us in Christ. The one who is over us all and has a cosmic plan for peace and reconciliation seems to invite us to fashion this kind of armor. So let's use it and make it better. And let's not be shy to share the design. Thanks be to God.